Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Just because you're working out doesn't mean you shouldn't look fabulous. The Inspire Collection by Kalia was designed with both style and performance in mind. It looks good, feels good, and stays put no matter how you move. And the collection has everything you need for a day at the gym. A support bra, crop tanks, bike shorts, amazing leggings, and more. It's their most versatile collection yet. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. In Tucson, Arizona, in September 2015, a woman named Tony Jennings was worried about her neighbor. Larry wasn't just her neighbor, he was also a close friend, and she noticed that he failed to return from a short trip. Lawrence Cosden, known as Larry to his friends, lived alone in Tucson, the second largest city in Arizona after Phoenix, just 60 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border. He was 69 years old and had never married or had children. He worked in the hardware department of a Walmart store, where he was known to be reliable and loved by many of his coworkers and customers. It just wasn't like Larry not to be where he said he was going to be. As far as Mrs. Jennings knew, Larry had never even missed a day of work. From the Labyrinth and Case File Presents, I'm Octavia McHenry. Mrs. Jennings said Larry told her he was going hiking in the Chiricahua Mountains, which, according to her, he did regularly. She also said that he was going to meet a friend on that trip. Her name was Carrie. Larry was supposed to be meeting with her in Wilcox, a small town in Cochise County along his route to the Chiricahuas. On September 13th, Larry headed to Rustler Park, of all places, that same remote campground in the Chiricahuas where Jeanette disappeared three months before. Mrs. Jennings said Larry had told her that he'd be back by the 17th. Tony Jennings waited two more days. Finally, on the 19th, she called the police to report Larry missing. Meanwhile, a U.S. Forest Service employee named Thomas Weaver noticed an abandoned vehicle at Rustler Park. It was a blue Mazda SUV. Thomas Weaver is the same Forest Service employee I mentioned in Episode 3. That isn't his real name. I'm using a pseudonym for this podcast. Weaver is the ranger that was present when the Castrayans arrived at Rustler Park three months earlier, the one who said they didn't wave back at him. Thomas Weaver reports the abandoned car. When Cochise County Sheriff's Office runs the license plate number, they discover that the Mazda belongs to a missing person from Tucson, Lawrence Cosden. The following day, search and rescue coordinator for Cochise County Sheriff's Office, Sergeant David Noland, goes to Rustler Park to look at the vehicle. The front seat windows were rolled down about four inches and there was still camping gear inside. It looked like Larry had filled out a payment slip and returned it to the fee permit box the same box Jeanette put her envelope immediately before disappearing, just three months earlier. In somewhat shaky handwriting, Larry filled out the permit in meticulous detail. He wrote down that he planned on staying for two days. He said he arrived on September 13th at 12.30 p.m., and he was planning on leaving on the 15th at 2 p.m. In the box where you're supposed to indicate the number of people in your party, 
Larry wrote one plus cat. I'll explain about the cat in a second. Larry attached a check in the amount of $20 for the USDA Forest Service. It was signed and dated on the 13th also. I uploaded a copy of this parking permit to the website at labyrinthpodcast.com so you can see it for yourself. Nothing inside the vehicle stood out. It simply looked as if Larry never returned from his hike. Tom Weaver tells Sergeant Nolan that one of the Forest Service volunteers spoke with Lawrence Cosden on the 13th around 1 p.m. And Larry told that volunteer that he was going to take a short hike to Barfoot Park and would be back shortly. According to Weaver, Larry also said he was going to leave his cat in the car. Here's the deal with the cat. When I spoke to Larry's friends and relatives, I found out that Larry was in the habit of taking his cat with him everywhere. And apparently, he took him on that fateful trip too. When he went hiking, he'd either put the kitty on a leash or place him in his backpack. But like I was saying, according to Weaver, Larry announced that he would be leaving his cat inside the vehicle. But according to his friends, Larry wouldn't have done that. And apparently he didn't because the cat was never found in the vehicle when it was recovered. But Costin's car windows were rolled down about four inches, according to Sergeant Nolan's report, and his conclusion was that the cat may have climbed out of the opening. Sergeant Nolan's report doesn't indicate who the volunteer is that spoke to Larry. It also doesn't indicate whether Sergeant Nolan spoke to this individual directly or only got the information secondhand from Weaver. Apparently, this individual said Larry was alone with his cat. This is important because according to Weaver, this individual may have been the last person to ever see Lawrence Cosden alive. I also found some news articles stating that a witness claims to have seen a man with a cat on Monday the 14th. But they don't say who the witness is. One article quotes a spokesperson for the sheriff's office saying that the witness is a woman. Sergeant Nolan spoke to Larry's neighbor, Tony Jennings, and was told that Larry had a sister, Laura, that lived in Chicago. Nolan tried reaching Laura, but she was out of the country on a trip. When he did speak to her, it had already been 15 days since Larry disappeared. Laura told Nolan that Larry was healthy and hiked often. Eight days after Lawrence Cosden entered Rustler Park with his cat and disappeared, search and rescue personnel executed the first search for him. On that day, According to their reports, there were low clouds, steady rain, and high winds. One team follows a trail that Thomas Weaver said Larry was planning on hiking, towards Barfoot Park. They had a cadaver dog with them, but the storm worsened and they weren't able to complete the assignment because of pine trees breaking and falling due to the wind and very low visibility. Five days later, they organized another search. According to one of the volunteers, the trail to Barfoot didn't allow for a quick hike. Due to the fallen trees and overgrown brush, the path was not maintained and was extremely difficult to navigate. Since the Horseshoe 2 fire in 2011 that burned over 200,000 acres of land in the Chiricahuas, many trails have been destroyed and in 2015, many of them were still in poor condition. Nobody knows if Larry actually hiked to Barfoot Park or changed his mind and went in another direction. They did, however, hike to Barfoot Park, but found no sign of him anywhere. No signs that someone went off trail or fell either. Either way, according to the report, the terrain did not allow for anyone to roll or tumble off trail very far without getting caught in the vegetation. I imagine that means that if someone slipped off the trail and became injured, 
they would be close enough for a trained dog to track them. According to their notes, Search and Rescue returned to Rustler Park on four more occasions during the fall of 2015. The last attempt was in early November. They hiked in different directions and never found a trace of Larry. They also never noticed any decomp smell indicative of a body. But it's a moot point anyway, because a few weeks after finding out that her brother was missing, Laura Cosden filed a petition for determination of death. And on November 10th, Less than two months after Larry was last seen, a Pima County Superior Court judge ruled that Larry was dead. I ordered a copy of the court documents to find out why the ruling took place so quickly, well before the statutory five-year waiting period. According to the court documents, the judge relied on the testimony of Sergeant Noland, who called into the hearing, and the reports of Cochise County Sheriff's Office to come to that conclusion. Nolan testified that the area had dangerous terrain, including damaged or dead trees that could easily fall on hikers. He also said that Larry had a heart condition, which, in high altitude, could be life-threatening. At the very end of the search and rescue report, it says, quote, The lack of any clues, other than the vehicle left behind by Cosden, might indicate Lawrence Cosden might have planned his own disappearance. End quote. The ruling reads as follows. The court finds that death has been established by circumstantial evidence and that the burden of proof for clear and convincing evidence has been met. According to his will and testament, which Larry signed in 2003, he left everything he owned to his younger sister Laura, mainly his house in Tucson and his brand new car. Court documents suggest he had a brother living in Los Angeles, but his name doesn't appear anywhere on the will. It appears that there was never a criminal investigation into Lawrence Cosden's disappearance and that his case was never assigned a detective. It consisted of a search and rescue mission, which is why you're not hearing any interviews with law enforcement on this podcast about this case. As far as the courts are concerned, Lawrence Cosden died on September 13, 2015, the same day he arrived at Rustler Park. But Larry had a lot of friends, and they're not on board with how quickly the case was closed. They're still worried for him and outraged with what they perceive as a superficial investigation. One of his co-workers took to the internet to beg for the search efforts not to be interrupted. Nobody deserves to just be left out in the wilderness, she wrote. I called the Walmart Larry worked at in Tucson, but a manager there forbade me from getting in touch with the employees, saying they're not allowed to talk with members of media She suggested I get in touch with corporate offices to submit a formal request. Corporate ignored my formal request to speak to one of their employees. So I went ahead and did it anyway. I spoke to two women that worked with Larry at Walmart. In order to make sure they don't lose their jobs, I'm going to keep their names anonymous. Jeanette's sister Xochitl spoke to a third colleague of Larry's and passed the conversation on to me. They described Larry as an intelligent, hardworking person who was very dedicated to his job and loved by many customers. A year after he disappeared, I was told customers were still coming and asking for him. He was always available to give someone a hand. Larry was a reliable person who never missed a deadline. When he didn't show up, his coworkers were concerned because that was out of the ordinary for him. He mentioned to some of his coworkers that he'd see them when he was back from his trip to the Chiricahuas. If there was one thing they agreed on, it's that Larry was a little odd. He liked taking care of trees and gave people all sorts of advice on growing plants. 
And the other thing that they're certain of is that Larry didn't kill himself. They said he appeared happy and never came across as suicidal or even depressed. I learned that Larry was seeing someone. He had a girlfriend, but nobody can remember her name. I was told by several people that they were under the impression that Larry was supposed to be meeting her at Rustler Park. Could that have been the woman named Carrie that Mrs. Jennings said Larry was supposed to be meeting on that trip? When Larry disappeared, his friends thought it was strange that his girlfriend didn't report him missing and allegedly didn't call work looking for him. They also said that she didn't appear concerned. None of the reports I have mentioned Larry's girlfriend. Her name doesn't appear anywhere. I don't even know for certain whether someone spoke to her. I would assume they must have, even just to make sure that she wasn't missing too. Without a name or knowing where she might live, I don't even know where to begin looking for her. According to several people, she doesn't live in Arizona. Some say New Mexico, others claim she was from a border town. Someone told me she had teenage children. Nobody seems to have any information about her. To this day, I have not been able to get a hold of the spokesperson for Cochise County Sheriff's Office, Carol Capas, to discuss Larry's disappearance. So that leaves me with the following questions. Did law enforcement ever speak to Carrie, or Larry's girlfriend, if these two are not the same person? Do they know if Larry met with Carrie and Wilcox as planned? If not, why didn't she show up? Did something happen in Wilcox during that meeting? Was Larry upset? Did he decide to proceed to Rustler Park on his own? The spokesperson was also quoted in local news saying that they had information to believe Larry was supposed to be meeting friends in the area, as in supposedly more than one person. Which sources was she relying on to make that statement? I'd like to know why a news source reported that Larry and his cat were seen by an unnamed witness on Monday, September 14th, when, according to the judge, Larry would have died the previous day. Lastly, The volunteer who last spoke to Larry said, according to Thomas Weaver, that Larry announced he'd leave his cat in the car while he went on a short hike. But if Larry left the cat inside the vehicle with the intention of returning, surely he wouldn't have left his windows rolled down to the point that his beloved cat could escape. After a bit of searching, I was able to get a hold of Laura Cosden, Larry's sister. She lives in Chicago. I was surprised to learn that Laura didn't even know that there was another person missing from Rustler Park. At the time, I was working with a park ranger to um, see if they could find him, even if they ended up finding bones. And he said they took dogs into the area, the Chiricahua Mountains, and couldn't find um, anything. He said they were looking for days on end, but he said it was very hard because of the storms in that area with mudslides and the like. So he said anything could have happened. Right. Well, I mean, yes, anything could have happened, but I, I do think it's strange that his remains were never found. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think it's more strange even. <laughs> Nothing I can do. I live in Chicago, and he, here I am. <laughs> Years later, just as confused as I was, when I first heard about him missing. Did he leave the cat in the vehicle or was the cat with him hiking? No, my brother always put, believe it or not, the cat on a leash and he'd walk with the cat. So I know he took the cat 
um, because other people saw him also with the cat. I'm not exactly sure if he had a leash. I just know that normally he would put a leash, you know, on the cat if he's going into the mountains. Okay, so he wouldn't have normally. So the cat was missing too. The cat was missing. He had several cats in a row, and you know he loved them dearly. You know he lived alone. That was his life. Okay. I have heard from some people that he did have a, a, a relationship with a woman at the time that he went missing. Do you know about that? Um, yes. Um, she was his companion for opera. She was, I think, older. And in fact, I was told that she was supposed to meet him at the campground. They were going to camp together. And I never understood or found out why she, she didn't show up, because for all I know, maybe she showed up, but no one ever told me anything. And I had no way to contact her because I didn't have a telephone or address even. So um, it was a challenge. Out of everyone I talked to, Larry's sister is the only one who didn't believe Larry and this woman were in an intimate relationship. But then again, she lived across the country, In any case, unfortunately, she also doesn't know her name or have a way to contact her. Were you ever present at Rustler Park, the place where his car was found? No, I never hiked there. But you went to court, you went to, you personally went to court in um, Tucson? Yeah, with my attorney. With your attorney? Okay. Yeah, because she helped me do all the paperwork because I couldn't have handled it on my own. It was just such an emotional time. Right. So what did you think? What, you know, what did you think at the time? What do you think? Well, at the time I was frustrated because I didn't know any details. You know, other than the basics that I've just explained to you. You know, and I didn't know how hard they tried to look for him, why there was no follow-up. I think they even told me that, you know, after a certain time, they stopped looking. You know, I think that's odd, too, because if you're responsible for that area, wouldn't you go looking just on the chance that maybe you'd find someone? In this case, there are two, according to you. There's a woman and a man, obviously. So um, you said he was a very reliable person, very good at checking in and coming back when you said he was going to come back. Did you ever consider that, uh, that he might have gone there to end his life? I was asked that question quite often, including by the rangers and the police. And there's no way my brother would have thought of suicide. He also had just purchased furniture. He was very excited about fixing up his living room. So you don't buy furniture and start fixing up your living room if you're planning on dying. That's Yeah, that's very significant. Uh, and you said he also just got a car. Yeah, the car, I don't know how much earlier, but it was that year. Um, It definitely was a new car because, you know, I ended up driving it and sold it back to the dealer. One thing that struck me as odd was how how quickly he was declared dead by the court. Was there... Well, that was because of my attorney. Maybe other people didn't have the attorney. She was amazing. She knew what paperwork to prepare kept pushing the court to give a closer date because I had to go back and forth to Tucson about four times. I think that's why it happened fast because she knew everything to do and they believed the story because 
the judge listened to the um, telephone call from that ranger, and I was breaking down throughout the whole courtroom. And, you know, he kept the, the judge. I would never heard of this before. He was very sensitive. He kept saying, Laura, oh, I'm so sorry that you've had to go through this. Um, this is terrible. And he kept repeating how sorry he was because, you know, every time the ranger mentioned another way that he could have been killed, you know, I got very emotional. You must have been convinced very early on that your brother was no longer alive for you to have, for your attorney to have pursued this, for the judge to rule him deceased. Were you well, convinced early on? Yeah. Well, only because of my contact with the rangers. They said it's very unlikely that he didn't return to the car because the windows were open. And knowing my brother, he treasured his cars. Any of his possessions he treasured. So he never would have left the windows open unless he thought he was coming back. So I think just from the obvious situation, I found it hard to believe that he would have been alive. My brother was used to hiking. What was his physical condition? Did, he, did I read somewhere that he had a heart problem? Um, you know, they made a lot out of that. He was in reasonably good condition. He never had a heart attack, but they were just giving him medication to prevent one. I mean, they must have found something in his heart that prompted that. How do you feel about it now? Do you feel like you got a sense of closure, even though you not, don't? Not at all. That was the worst thing. You know, if you know that he's dead... And what happened, disclosure. But I don't know either. I just assume he's dead. But because if he was alive, he definitely would have come back off the mountain, as he always did. He did this a lot. He was always walking around the mountains. So that wasn't unique to him. The summer Jeanette disappeared in that following fall, Jeanette Castrillon's family returned to Rustler Park looking for her several times. One time, her two brothers, Fabian and Oscar, camped there. They'd heard that another person had disappeared from Rustler Park, and they wanted to see firsthand what was going on. When they arrived, they found search and rescue looking for Larry Cosden. They approached one of the volunteers, but they didn't get any useful information. Soon after, Thomas Weaver drove up to their campground to speak with them. Here's Fabian. That's the first time we interacted. So he came to talk to you? Yeah. Okay, what did he say? So I don't remember exactly what the first words were, but then we just uh, gravitated to ask what happened, what he thought happened to Larry. So when we said what would be the, what, what do you think happened, he floated the idea that perhaps uh, she had walked into a drug deal or something and that uh, something similar and that uh, maybe they took her. And uh, then the other theory he floated out was that perhaps uh, an animal, a large mammal, took her, a large animal. And so what did you think about those two possibilities he gave? Uh, though I didn't think those were plausible because uh, Border Patrol had discarded any, any theory about any drug dealers doing or even traffickers being in that area. That they would tend to you know, usually stay in the high ground and avoid places where there's people. And uh, the other was, just from my knowledge from animals in general, it takes a 
big animal to take somebody, and even then it would leave some kind of evidence, blood or something. So I didn't, I didn't find any of those two uh, plausible. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. So Thomas Weaver, an avid outdoorsman and hunter, apparently offered two explanations of what may have happened to Jeanette. According to the Castrions, he said that either an animal may have taken her, or she may have stumbled upon a drug deal and was taken or killed as a result. But like Fabian pointed out, those are both very unlikely scenarios. We'll talk about drug smuggling across the border in more detail later on. But as far as large predators in the Chiricahuas go, There are two kinds, black bear and mountain lion. Although black bear and lions roam the Chiricahuas, neither animal represents a real threat to humans. Black bear are so timid they're more likely to run away and climb a tree when confronted than they are to attack a human being. Mountain lions also prefer to stay away from people. The risk of a black bear or a mountain lion attack are infinitely small. You're more likely to drown in your own bathtub than be attacked by either one of those animals. You're more likely to get killed by a domestic dog, a swarm of bees, or get struck by lightning. You're 60,000 times more likely to get murdered by another human than be killed by a black bear. Besides, Jeanette was a hefty woman, not a small child or a pet. Even a bear couldn't have snatched her up without leaving a trace, without anybody hearing or seeing anything. Fabian explained that Thomas Weaver was talkative and friendly. Unlike everyone else who wasn't willing to share information about the search, Weaver seemed eager to speak with them. He said that they watched Weaver observing the search mission from a distance and thought his demeanor was strange. Fabian couldn't put his finger on what it was exactly, but after that conversation with Weaver, he had a funny feeling about him. But he also wanted to make it very clear that he's not trying to accuse anybody of anything, that he's just explaining the logic behind why he felt that way and why Weaver's behavior stood out to him at that time. In February of 2016, eight months after Jeanette's disappearance, detectives agreed to meet with Jeanette's family to discuss potential new leads. This is Jeanette's father. We had another meeting where I I told them, okay, now that uh, you know that we're out of the picture because we're not the ones, why haven't you interviewed everybody that was there, including some of the... uh, 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 rangers, and his answer said, was, well, they work for the government, how could they do something like that? I, and we were always looking for leads. We kept on looking to see what else had happened, uh, who else had disappeared on the area. 
The family asked them to interview any Forest Service employees that were present on the day Jeanette went missing. Here's Jeanette's brother, Fabian, again. There's a lot of unanswered questions I don't understand. I, I, I kept asking a lot, why don't you investigate everyone on that mountain? Everyone, including the forest people there. And uh, eventually he got one interview and it was after a while of nagging. Detective Hoke makes contact with a U.S. Forest Service supervisor. This supervisor checks the records and tells him that the employee assigned to the camp that day had been Thomas Weaver. He would have been the only staff member present at the time Jeanette disappeared. He was assigned to clean the restrooms and do any maintenance necessary. Weaver is brought in for a formal interview. That's when he told detectives that he was there when the Castrions arrived at Russell Park. He said he only saw one man and one woman. When shown a photo of Jeanette, he said he was certain he'd never seen her. I don't have the audio of this interview. All I have is a typed summary. What caught my eye is that Weaver gave the deputies a different story of what happened during the encounter with Fabian and Oscar. He said that several months after Jeanette's disappearance, he saw the Kestrions in the area and observed a colleague speak with them in regards to the other missing person, Larry Cosden, and he believed his colleague had stated that drug smugglers may have taken Jeanette or a mountain lion may have attacked her. I discussed this discrepancy with Fabian. Also says, so like, you know, when they, when they confront him about, did you tell her family that she could have been kidnapped or taken by a mountain lion? And he said, no. Well, okay, here's the thing. I don't have that interview. They didn't give it to me. I only have like, kind of like a, a summary that was typed up about that interview. Mm-hmm. And in there, it says that uh, he said somebody else said that, like another person suggested that. No, no. Another that, for, that was definitely him, right? Yeah, it was definitely him. Yeah, he's the one that floated the idea that perhaps he first said a wild animal might have done it. Um, then he, when we sort of refuted that, that he said that perhaps it was somebody or she walked into a drug deal, which we sort of said it would be weird if that happened in the middle of the campground. And so then he... He was a little bit over, yeah, he was explaining a little bit too much, which is where we started to get a little bit curious as to his demeanor. So Fabian reiterates that his recollection is that there was nobody else there. His memory is that Thomas Weaver showed up to the campsite by himself and there was no co-worker with him and they didn't speak to anyone else. Thomas Weaver's recollection of events is in contradiction with Fabian's memory. I couldn't help but think about how, when Larry Costin disappeared, Thomas Weaver pointed to one of the other volunteers, which he seems to have done in this instance as well. He told Sergeant Noland that one of his colleagues spoke to Larry, and Larry told the other volunteer he was going for a short hike to Barfoot Park and would be leaving the cat in his vehicle. But I wasn't able to confirm that because so far, I haven't been able to trace that story back to its source. Here's Fabian again. Then I asked if they hooked him up to the, it's not a polygraph, it's a lie detector machine like the one we were hooked up to. And he said no, so I, I, of course, I asked again, why not? And so after nagging for another while, he tried to get him back. I guess he he, he passed it. But I want to see those notes because ever since we started pointing to this man, uh, I haven't seen him there anymore. In December of 2016, Thomas Weaver is brought in once again. 
This time, he's given a VSA, and he passed, meaning there was no sign of deception. I went back and re-listened to many hours of audio that I had recorded during my early meetings with the sheriff's deputies. I found some segments where they originally talked about Weaver. That was the first time I'd ever heard his name. He recalled uh, the interview with the park worker, the one that was parked in front of the RV, was cleaning the, the bathroom. Yeah. Tom. Tom. Yeah, I interviewed him. Yeah. And he recalled something during the interview, during the interview where he popped out, well, she could be in a mind shift. Exactly. Tom said, well, yeah. she could be in a mind shift. Who said that? The Park Service uh, officer. Service. He's there for service. The federal law enforcement. Bathroom. No, he wasn't federal law enforcement. He was just a he was a volunteer for the Forest Service. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Bathrooms just picking up yeah. trash. Lindy told us that that he said yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. Are the mine shafts anywhere on that map that you were showing me? Or oh, no. where are, are the mine shafts? I mean, there's mine well, shafts all over those During the official interview with Detective Hogue, when asked what he thought happened to Jeanette. Tom Weaver said he didn't know, but it would have been easy to either be taken to a mine shaft and thrown or dumped into one, or simply be walking and maybe fall into a mine shaft. What Devin was telling me was that he had, you know, because he works law enforcement for the whole Cornell National Forest. He said there was a couple of times, you know, like he said it was raining one night and he was on patrol and he went over on his saddle. Okay, he went up there. We're talking about Tom. He, they're referring to Tom now, okay? And he said Tom was sitting up there in his car. Or his pickup. Yeah. 10.30 at night in the rest of the park. Why? That's exactly he's, right. He, well, he, he asked said, him, why are you here? He what said he got, he, he said this he guy said, has given him bad vibes since the first time he came in contact with him. He's giving who bad vibes? Definitely the Forest Service law enforcement guy. Here's the thing. What brought this up to Lindy is that Fabian told me, he said, you know what? He seems a little odd to me. You got to check him out. And I said, I'll look into him. And then I went to Lindy and I said, hey, what do you know about this Tom guy? He said, oh, he said, you know what? He does seem a little weird to me, too. And I said, well, what strikes you as weird? And he gives those examples. And I said, well, that's odd. What was the example again, that he was hanging out at Russell Park at 1030 in his car? At night. night. And he lives in He lives in And he said there was a woman in a, in a, in a, kid, a kid in the car with him. Yeah. And he only and rolled he, the window down about this much. And he told Lindy that, that he was just waiting for the rain to stop before to he left, oh, to, to go home. His two sons are grown. One of them's a police officer and, and his wife is. So you have no idea who the what, Who the woman or the child, child was. Child was. Lindy didn't identify In case you didn't catch the anecdote, here it is. After the Castrions pushed for Thomas Weaver to be interviewed, Devin Lindy, the law enforcement officer with the Forest Service, told detectives a story about a strange encounter he had previously had with Thomas Weaver. Lindy told them he was at the campgrounds late one night. It was dark and raining. A vehicle in the parking lot caught his attention. There were people inside. He went to take a look, knocked on the windows. It was Thomas Weaver. He rolled the window down just a little bit. Lindy saw that there was a woman and child with him. But Weaver, in his 60s, is married and his children are grown men. Lindy couldn't help but wonder why someone would be in such a remote place at night, in the rain. Weaver just said that he was waiting out the rain, and that was the end of that. That's, yeah, that's the thing. Does he have a criminal record? No. No. He's, he's, he's retired from the state prison as a corrections officer. 
doesn't mean you can't have a yeah. record afterwards. Right. But he's only been retired now, maybe five years. Yeah. Maybe he hasn't been retired long from uh -uh. state prison. And then he went to work. He'd only, he'd he started been, off with him doing volunteer work. He didn't even he'd get only paid. Been, he'd only been with him like that was like his second summer when this happened. There was a time here that we were really discussing Tom because think about it. Oh, they're saying it's odd. Yeah, but yeah. these things throw everything out. Well, well, okay. At one time, people are thinking, "No, oh, it's the family." Then the next minute, you throw the the Tom theory out there. Oh shit! Well, no, I, I changed my mind on that. No, it's Tom. Well, after and then and then we the think others. Guy, after the dude goes missing, and Tom's the one that reports him, and says, "Yeah, I saw him eight days ago up here," and blah blah blah. I then interviewed Tom twice after that. A four, both of them are formal interviews. I mean, he's met, read his rights and everything. One of them is a VSA. What did you think? I don't... I didn't catch anything that was evasive. I didn't. It, but anyhow, this is what I'm getting at in interviewing Devin. I said, what makes him a killer? What makes him a kidnapper? Because that's basically what he's getting into. And he said, well, one time I found him up in the mountains. Is that odd to be up at least an hour from in the middle of the night, when it's raining, with a female that he doesn't know, and a little child. Is that odd? That's odd. I'll give you that. That's odd. Other than that, do you think he kidnapped her? Did she look like she was in distress or anything? Well, no, I don't think he kidnapped her. Well, that's what we're kind of working here right now. If, if we are going to work a theory, let's work the kidnapping theory, and then, and then God forbid, a homicide that they killed her. He killed her. Did you ever ask him who the woman and child were? No, I don't think we did in the interview. No, I don't believe so. I don't. I was focused in Jenna Custer. Not what, hey, do you remember years ago, Devin being out here and you out here with a lady in the rain with a child? I don't remember. And even if he would have said, yeah, that was my girlfriend and her son. What's her name? Yeah, you know. Well, let's just say, well, let's just say she said, okay, her name's Francisca or what have you. Let's just say he answered all my questions. Yeah. How is that going to help me with well, Janet? Well, because then you, you can follow up with her and she said, oh, yeah, it's totally fine. We were just waiting for the rain to go away. Yeah, well, we can what if this all night long. And then we follow up with her and she said, no, yeah, he, we're, we're having a, a an affair. <laughs> or he's a good guy. Or he's not. Now I find out he's a creep. Yeah. There are so many rabbit holes that can we can what if this until the cows come home and then where are you at? I can tell you of a hundred creepy fellows. I can log on and show you in our jail <laughs> a ton of creepy people. But they're not homicidal maniacs or kidnappers or rapists. I tried to reach Thomas Weaver over the phone, but he declined an interview. I introduced myself and told him I'm interested in the disappearances of Jeanette and Larry. I told him that I was looking for any information about what he might have seen or heard. Anything he can remember, since he was one of the few people present. There was an uncomfortable silence at the other end of the line. I tried to break the ice, but he seemed annoyed or angry. He said he has nothing he wants to say to me. Then he hung up. What do we know about Thomas Weaver? We know that he's competent with firearms and an avid hunter, very much at home in the woods. He's now in his 60s and lives in a small town in Arizona. For most of his career, he worked as a correctional officer. 
When he retired from his job, he worked for the Forest Service for a few years. He was a seasonal employee, working about six months out of the year, from spring to summer, when most campgrounds are open. He has come under the radar of law enforcement before, for game and fish-related incidents and for numerous traffic violations. I've been told through a source that he's arrogant and likes to brag about the animals he killed. Some say that he's odd. He's bad news, one woman said. But none of these people wish to speak to me or go on the record. So I will not go into further detail about their allegations. I tried reaching the law enforcement officer for the Forest Service, Devin Lindy, and also Thomas Weaver's former supervisor. They were both helpful, but told me that without the approval of their chain of command, they couldn't talk to the media. I spoke to Heidi Schul from the U.S. Forest Service's Public Affairs Office. She handles all media inquiries on behalf of the Forest Service in our region, but she told me the Forest Service doesn't wish to comment and won't be releasing any information. So, Jeanette and Larry's cases intersect because of several common denominators. They disappeared from the exact same place, only three months apart. In both cases, search and rescue efforts weren't able to track them or even find a single clue, a footprint, or a scent. In both cases, there was the same Forest Service employee present around the time of the disappearance. Larry's friends and strangers on the internet alike were haunted by his bizarre disappearance. Jeanette's family was upset too. They were hoping that another mystery at Rustler Park would propel their own investigation forward as well. That it would give law enforcement more incentive to search for answers. Instead, now there were two people missing from Rustler Park and zero bodies found. Here's Fabian again. It's weird because I, it's beyond, it boggles my mind that another person could get lost in the exact same campground and you would think they were sent into Calgary to figure out what's going on there. To make things even more bizarre, there's a third unsolved missing person case in the area around the same exact time. It happened three months after Jeanette disappeared and only 10 days before Larry went missing. On September 3, 2015, a 53-year-old woman named Mary Lucille Brown Sloan went camping with a group of friends. The venue is Mount Graham, about 100 miles north of Rustler Park. Mary's husband had passed away a few months before this trip, and she was trying to get her mind off things by meeting new people and experiencing new things. According to some news sources, Mary knew at least some of the members of this hiking group, but this was the first time she'd actually gone hiking with them. The group, which consisted of seven other people, met a few times a year for planned hikes. One of the members of this group had even given Mary a ride to Mount Graham that day. In a surveillance video from a gas station along the route, Mary can be seen with one of the men from the group, the one she carpooled with. The group chose a spot to camp for the night off a forest service road and pitched their tents in an unestablished campground. The area was quite isolated and a ways up a windy mountain road. It was very close to some steep cliffs. Around 8.30 on the night of September 3rd was the last time anyone saw Mary. Everyone had retired back to their tents to go to sleep. They thought she had, too. But the following morning, they realized that Mary was no longer there. In fact, it seemed that she hadn't even spent the night in her tent. Mary's purse, her cell phone, and other personal belongings 
were all left behind in her tent. Her bed was still rolled up. That morning, a member of the group called for help and Graham County Search and Rescue were brought in to look for Mary. Canines weren't able to pick up Mary's trail anywhere other than around the campsite. One dog did seem to have a hit near those cliffs I was telling you about. They were only about 80 yards from the group's campsite. That's just 240 feet, or 70 meters. The base of the mountain from those cliffs is said to be about 9,500 feet deep. Some parts are inaccessible, but I was told a dog and canine handler were lowered at least part of the way and searched for Mary thoroughly, but they found no trace of her down there. Multiple agencies participated in this search, including three search and rescue teams, DPS helicopters, and cadaver dogs from the Arizona Department of Corrections, and a specialized rope repelling team from Maricopa Search and Rescue. There was no evidence of foul play in the case, but there was also no evidence of a suicide or anything at all. Mary simply disappeared. Mary didn't have any children that I know of. Her more distant relatives that I got a hold of didn't want to comment on her disappearance. Of all the cases, this is the one I have the least amount of information on. Mary was 5'3 and weighed about 110 pounds before she disappeared. In the only picture of her I can find, she's smiling from ear to ear. She was last seen wearing a green shirt and blue jeans. So, three disappearances, all within three months close together in time and in space. The similarities are striking. Coming up next on The Labyrinth. Let me, how do I, how do I put this? This case has more twists and turns than the Blue Ridge Parkway. I'll challenge you to something. Do a homework on missing persons from national parks. How many have come up missing every year out of national parks in the United States? It's going to astound you what you're going to find out. Around here, when the hunters go out and start hunting, they're, they're everywhere. And they find skeletons and bones. Yeah. And the majority of those are all illegal agents. He up and left town um, about uh, three months after Paul went missing. And he went back home to Wisconsin and was at a party drinking and started telling everybody that the reason he left Tucson was because he killed a cop and he buried him in the desert. 